the, uh, the Lord told Paul at one point that his power is made perfect in weakness, and I will confess that today I feel exceptionally weak. I had a Pyrex dish fall on my big toe last night, um, <laughs> and uh, my wife and I were having a fight. Anyway, the <laughs> um, so uh, if I sit down, it's 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 my my weakness really shining through. I'm also exceptionally grumpy, and it's a great day to have a family meeting when I'm really grumpy. Um, <laughs> so I apologize in advance. Anyway, <laughs> um, so we are going to have communion. Normally, at this point, we would have ushers walk forward. We would distribute the elements. We would, uh, we, we would have more things happen, uh, but COVID regulations would have necessitated that everyone wear masks, and um, I just didn't feel like putting everybody through that. So uh, today we're going to be drawing near to the Lord's table. We're going to celebrate communion, uh, which, which it's, it's of the body and blood of Christ, but it's in remembrance of him. Um, there's certain things the community, yeah, I like how you're all shaken already, <laughs> but there's certain things that, that communion represents the, 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 the grape juice or the wine is supposed to represent Jesus' blood shed on the cross. And then the wafer on top, which is actually on top, represents his body. But this ordinance was instituted by Christ at the Last Supper. It was instituted for the perpetual memory of his dying for our sakes and the pledge of his undying love for us. It's as a bond of our union with him and each other as members of his mysterious or mystical body. It's as a seal of his grace to us and a renewal of our obedience to him. It's supposed to remind us of his sacrifice and we're supposed to respond to it. For the blessed assurance of his presence with us, who are gathered here in his name as an opportunity for us who love the Savior to feed spiritually on him, who is the bread of life, and as a pledge of his coming again. Did you know that that's all what communion is for? Now, if you don't know the Lord, don't take communion. Just put the cup back. There is no judgment from myself. There should be no judgment from anyone else. Because frankly, to drink of this and to not actually believe in the Lord or in the Lord and his return is to heap judgment on yourself. And I'm looking at the clock, not any particular person. Sorry, Carl. Um, so seriously, do not do it. Do not do it if you don't know the Lord. It's if, if you've got unrepentant sin, if you, uh, I, I, we do not, by the way, here require that you're a member of our church to take communion. That is something that some churches do. But if you're in bad straits with a church, if you ran away from a church and you did not reconcile, Jesus says, if you're laying your offering at the altar and remember that the brother, a brother has something against you, just leave the offering, go and reconcile with your brother. So make sure that if you're in bad straits with the church, that you reach out before, before you take communion. There's reasons to not take it. Taking it heaps judgment on yourself. 
So with that said, and all the scary things out of the way, I want to remind you all that the taking of this is a physical symbol of Jesus' last supper with his, with his disciples. It's a physical symbol of your faith in him and his work in you. It's done in remembrance of him. So let me pray for communion, and then we'll, we'll take the bread together, if I can get it out. It's the worst part of this, is that it doesn't always come out cleanly. The, uh, I, used to, I used to do this with shut-ins, um, and I'd sit there, like, while, while we're all talking about it, I have my key out, and I'm trying to, like, separate the top layer. So, <laughs> so let's, let's pray. Let's pray specifically for communion and then for the taking of the bread. Lord, thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for uniting us together. Thank you for bringing us together for your glory, for your honor, and for our benefit. I pray, Lord, for, for those of us here that as we take this communion, we wouldn't be thinking that it's just it's, it's something necessary for salvation, but instead we would be taking it in a celebratory manner, remembering what you've already done for us for your body being broken, being marred, being cut, being whipped because of our sins. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Go ahead and eat the wafer. I promise the, the banquets in heaven are not going to taste like cardboard. All right. Uh, yeah, the juice is to wash that down. All right. <laughs> so that was Jesus's body broken on the cross. This is, was Jesus's blood shed on the cross. Go ahead and drink. Let's pray. <laughs> Lord, your shed blood washes us clean of our sin, and I look forward to the day that I can dine with you in your kingdom. Thank you, Lord, for your sacrifice. Amen. All right. Now, what I would like is for us to have... Just a moment of silence for you to pray personally, thanking the Lord for his sacrifice, for what he's done for you, for the grace that he shed specifically for you. Father, thank you again for sending your son for us, for lowly sinners like us. Thank you for sacrificing your own son. Amen. So, I hate that. I hate when that happens. All right.
I am going to have to stand. All right. Going into our word for the day, um, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. Uh, when I was younger, I spent a lot of time at other people's houses. I made homes in other people's houses constantly. Uh, I'd spend the night at my friends' places um, probably two out of three weekends in a year. So, um, or, or they would stay the night at, at my place, but most of the time I'd just be gone. I'd be, I'd be at their place, and like my parents would have to call and make sure I was still alive because they hadn't heard from me in several days. There was even one friend that I'd go and stay at his house, and I'd just go to school from his place, um, just ride his bus, which you're not supposed to do, but um, but that's 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 just what I did. And one thing I could count on was this: the more time I spent with my friends, or or these people that I called my friends, the more I would realize I either liked them or I hated them. Uh, it's. It, it's not the simple case of getting annoyed with someone. You can get annoyed with someone that you really like, and you get over it pretty quick, right? Uh, you're willing to forgive them. They're willing to forgive you. Um, but then there's other people that you just, when you spend time with them, you're just like, no, no, this, this uh, I'm happy to call you an acquaintance, maybe. Um, or there was, there was actually one friend that I spent a couple nights at his house, and his mom basically said, I hate you. Uh, to me, and I wasn't allowed over anymore, and I wasn't even allowed to be friends with with them anymore. Which there was, there, like, she had a legitimate reason. So it was, it was my fault, anyway. The <laughs> but um, but the more time you spend with someone, you can really tell whether you like them or whether you hate them. Now that's an oversimplified example of what we're going to encounter in our text for today. Uh, before. Uh, before our verses that we read today, Christ has already been questioned. His theology and motives have been the center of these questions, right? Uh, the Pharisees have tried to ask him very specific questions, trying to figure out like, hey, you're not practicing this thing that we do. Why not? But today we're going to hear an accusation that against Christ, Christ is sheer blasphemy, so let's read our text for today. So Matthew chapter 9, verses 32 to 34. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. This is the word of the Lord. So we begin our section today with Jesus leaving the scene of his previous miracle. Last week we talked about Jesus healing the two blind men. He takes the two blind men, uh, takes them privately into uh, presumably Peter's house, heals them, and then he, he charges them, he tells them to remain silent, uh, but they disregarded that commandment of the Lord, presumably because they were joyful. They were blind, and now they see. Yeah, let's, let's talk about this Jesus feller. But they didn't listen to God in the midst of this, you know, presumable joy. And they instead spread his fame through all that district. But the way that Matthew starts us out, as they were going away, 
means that they had not yet spread his fame through all the, all the district, at least for what he did to them. Jesus' fame preceded him basically everywhere he went. But, um, but, the, but, but as they're leaving, this demon-oppressed or demon-possessed man comes up to Jesus. Um, Matthew writes this section as if it happened immediately after. And Matthew kind of has that, that, that going drama. If you were to sit down and just read all of this, most of what Matthew says seems to happen all at once. I mean, you could sit down and read the whole Gospel of Matthew and wonder, when did he sleep except in the boat with a storm? Um, but the way he's writing that again, it, it seems like it was pretty quick after. Um, and and he, when he writes, as they were going away, behold... That behold is actually really important. Uh, it's, it's kind of like an interruption in a sentence. Uh, it's, it's not that you need to know it, but it's the Greek word edu. And when edu is in there, it's, it's, it's to snap your attention. It's like saying look or look here in a, in a literary sense. It's almost like shouting at you when this word is there. Matthew wants this moment to capture our attention as readers for us to also read it carefully and to take note of this instance, of what's happening right here. Uh, a good example would be like when I tell my children, and Abby can confirm this, I'm like, look at me and listen to what I'm saying. And she's looking at me and listening. All right. <laughs> good job, Abs. Uh, <laughs> but, but when I tell my kids, look at me, I want their attention. I want to make sure that they're paying attention. That's essentially what Matthew is doing here. Behold is an old-fashioned word, but it's, it's look. So as we pay attention to these verses, we should take note of this man's affliction. It was somehow demonically influenced. He was mute. Or if you have the King James Version, he was dumb, which just means mute. Uh, the ESV, however, translates it, as I read it, demon-oppressed, that this man was demon-oppressed. Uh, the New American Standard says demon-possessed. The uh, King James, um, it says demon-possessed as well, or just possessed. I can't remember now. Um, so what's the difference? Well, there's not any. And I've talked about this before. In the Greek, there's no difference between demonic oppression and demonic possession. It's the same word. And it's translated demonized. You remember that? A couple weeks ago, I was talking about demonizing. Um, and and the, the, there, there are some people out there who try to tear out the suffering. You know what I mean by tear? Like tears in a cake. You know, you got the top tear. Usually the bottom is like the, the big one, but it sports all the weight, and then it goes up. And um, So they try to tear out, and they say, like, well, possession is the worst thing a demon can do, and oppression is, you know, not as bad. But biblically, there's actually no distinction. It's all demonizing. So what's the difference biblically from a demon-oppressed or a demon-possessed person? None. But that doesn't mean there's not different strengths at which somebody suffers under the influence of demons. Uh, for instance, these demons made this guy mute. But 
There were also demons that made strange people live in caves and shout at people and attack them as they went by. We can, we can officially say those folks probably worse off. They were sitting in caves. They were cutting themselves. Again, that was actually what we read in Matthew chapter 8, at the end of Matthew chapter 8. They're cutting themselves. They're hurting themselves. So there are tears, but again, in terms of the use of the word demon possession and oppression, it's just demonizing in general. Now, I, I, I really wanted to point that out just by way of reminder. Here we have a man who's afflicted with demons. They've bound his tongue. They've prevented him from speaking for some period of time. And Jesus casts the demon out, which allows him to speak. Right? It's like, uh, go home, take two, take two, and call me in the morning, right? Uh, Jesus knew exactly what, what this man was suffering from. And from that, we can, we can derive a minor point of the text that there are some people who are afflicted with what we would see as a physical ailment, but it's actually a spiritual problem. Be demonized. It would be unwise of us to think that every mute piece person is demon-oppressed or demonized. Why? Because there's actually some physical reasons for it. There's actually some people who cannot speak or they cannot hear that are not possessed, but they have a physical ailment. But then there's other people who have a physical ailment, and it's, it's a spiritual problem. Therefore, there are some in this world who are suffering under what we may assume is demonic, but it's actually a physical ailment. And there's also people who are suffering under a physical ailment that we would presume is a physical ailment, but is actually demonic. So how do you tell the difference, right? Practical answer, how do you tell the difference? We don't. <laughs> because if, if, if you were Jesus' apostle and a mute man comes up to you and he's making signs, right, trying to tell you, like, hey, something's afflicting me, uh, and, and, you know, what, what are you going to do? Well, do you have a tongue tie? Are you deaf? Because that's actually a reason many people didn't speak at this time is because they were actually deaf. We can't always tell. So the, how do you tell the difference between demonizing and physical ailment? Well, we can't always. And we shouldn't make assumptions. And I say this as a minor point of the text because it is, in general, not the real point. So I'm just kind of just going to fly over it. Uh, for the most part, but I do want to make the point that every drug addict is not demonically possessed. But not every drug addict is not demonically possessed. So how do you respond to that? How do you respond to the reality that you, you don't know? You take the person to Christ. You pray for them, Tell them to go to Christ. Tell them to pray about their addiction, their struggle, their issue. Because not every case of depression or bipolar disorder or drug addiction or alcoholism or everything else is demonizing. It's not a cut and dry black and white situation. It's just not. Some are, but some aren't. So, so take it with care. Take it with grace. Only Jesus knew about this. If you were an apostle and a guy comes up and starts motioning that he can't speak, you, you know, uh, say, ah, uh, let's look at your tongue, right? 
Try and shout for me. Punch him in the gut. See what happens, right? Like, you're going to want to test it. You're going to want to figure out, like, hey, why is this person not speaking? But Christ knew the real problem. Jesus knew what to do in this situation immediately. And so he does now. He doesn't always solve it right away. He may have the person walk a period of repentance or struggle or toil or suffering, and it may even be that that person never, ever gets healed. It may be that they're not even the Lord's. But, but, take them to the Lord regardless. It was, in fact, the, 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 what Jesus did here, that, the, that Jesus was able to cure it, that presented the real dilemma of this text. Uh, the real issue, issue wasn't that this man was healed. It was actually, uh, nobody could argue with that, right? This guy can't speak and then he can. So nobody can argue with the truth of Jesus' miracles here. None of Jesus' opponents can say anything. Right? They were mute. Oh, no, they weren't. We'll get to that. And in fact, the truth was that Jesus was doing all these miraculous things, right? Uh, they result in the crowds marveling at him. They, he's got a reputation that goes all throughout Capernaum, all throughout Judea, all throughout everywhere in Israel. His reputation precedes him. But what Jesus was doing was unique. During Jesus' time, there was actually... Uh, a whole set of heretical groups. Uh, in the second century, there was a group called the Essenes, which they retreated off into the desert. They hid in caves. Um, <coughs> they hid <coughs> from persecution. But they said that these special caves had special healing properties. And so if you went and lived in these caves, you could actually learn better. You could have, um, you, you could have your, your ailments healed. And they eventually died. They starved to death or were killed. We're not really sure. Um, but it's, it's from the Essenes that we get the Dead Sea Scrolls, which if you know anything about biblical history, that confirmed uh, the validity of the book of Isaiah. But that was the second century. In the first century, there's groups who are claiming to do miracles, right? Come out, come out, let me teach you. They were itinerant preachers. They would, they would gather all these intelligent people and they, they would take them <clears throat> under their wing, kind of like Jesus did. It was pretty normal, but but these people weren't able to do miracles. They didn't do anything like that. Uh, they would sometimes blame the person and say, I can't heal you because of, and give some like rationale why they're incapable of being healed. That's still a problem today. It's never changed. Um, they, they would say that there needed to be certain conditions. There were also zealots who promised God's favor and God's blessing. If, if, if Jews would come and they would wage war against Rome and almost all those groups, because Rome was militarily strong, almost all those groups got crushed. There were also uh, traveling exorcists, which we encounter in the book of Acts, the sons of Sceva. There were traveling exorcists who made a living the, doing these these. Uh, ornate rites for people claiming to cast out demons, and here's Jesus actually doing it. So Jesus is actually talking about his kingdom. He's actually casting out demons, and he's actually healing people. Jesus is not claiming new teachings like the other 
the other itinerant preachers when he goes from town to town, right? He's actually taking what's old and showing the heart of it. Jesus is unique. He's special. And the crowds marvel at him. That's the end of verse 33. And the crowds marvel at him, saying, never has anything like this been seen in Israel. Nobody else has done this. He's, 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 he's actually doing these things in front of us. Can you believe it? Could you believe it if you, if you were lame, if you couldn't walk? And then somebody walked in and, and went, you know what? The Lord cares for you. Bing, your, your legs are healed, they're working. Would you doubt it? No, you'd be walking around, maybe jumping around, maybe praising God. So these people marvel at it. Even if I saw that happen, I would stand there, wow. What can a person do when they see these things? Well, they marvel. They're in awe. In this case, they're in the presence of God incarnate. So Jesus does these things proving who he is, proving that he can undo the realities of sin, the, the struggles with sin, sin nature. <clears throat> when he's speaking, uh, people's hearts are aflame, Luke 24, 32. He convicts sinners, shows, uh, shows such love to the destitute that people are marveling at him. That's the only thing they can do. Wrong. They can either show that they love or marvel at him, or they can hate him and call out his, his, his motives or his power. And that's the real drama. You get that when, when, uh, when in verse 34, Matthew writes, but the Pharisees said, calling out the group, showing the contrast. These crowds are marveling at Jesus, except the Pharisees. The Pharisees showed that, that they could avoid marveling at Jesus. As one commentator put it, better a mute devil than a blaspheming devil. And that's what the Pharisees have done. They, they, they may not have shown that they were demonized, but they showed that they actually hated God. And it was the Pharisees that should have been the first to acknowledge that Jesus was who he said he was. They were experts, experts in the law and the prophets. They, they knew everything that was supposed to happen. They knew how God was supposed to come, but they'd misinterpreted it. They missed the heart of it. They put in all these rules and regulations and assumed that they had to be perfect themselves in order for God to love them. And so then when they see when they see Christ doing all these incredible things, what do they do? It's the prince of demons that's letting him do these. You guys are all duped. You're stupid. Why can't you see what we see? Well, because your eyes are closed, Pharisee, not, not theirs. God has always had those among his fold who actually hate him even though they outwardly should have been counted among his people. And that's, again, the Pharisees should have been the first to see it, and they were the first to resist. 
Uh, one of my favorite examples of this in all of scripture is, is what we call Korah's Rebellion. It's in Numbers, which everybody knows is the most adventurous book of the Bible, Numbers. Uh, if you don't know much about the Bible, Numbers is literally a bunch of numbers, but then there's all these like little stories strewn in. But in Numbers chapter 16, a grandson of Levi named Korah, so he was, he was a Levitical priest. The book of Leviticus was written for him. And, and he's a grandson of Levi. He's, he's Levi's son's son. And he leads a rebellion against Moses, who's following God's leading and doing the things he's supposed to be doing. Um, I would suggest that you read number 16, actually, just in your off time, because it's awesome. Uh, but, but the <coughs> Korah's problem is essentially that Moses is leading and Korah thinks that the Levites should be leading, that, that he should be leading, that everybody in Israel should have an equal voice. And, and Moses warns him. Moses says, says, this is not what God wants. I promise this is not what God's, God wants. And, uh, and here's Korah, a priest and a Levite who's supposed to be submitting to God's ordination of things, his, his, his setting up of things, but he's rebelling against God. He's even blaspheming God and elevating himself, saying, I know better than Moses. So how did that end for Korah, you think? Because, because you're supposed to stone false prophets. So do you think Moses picked up a rock and threw it at him? Numbers uh, 16, 31 to 32, just to read you a quick snippet. And as soon as he <coughs> had finished speaking all these words, Moses, Moses was warning him, the ground under them split apart. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. Then, by the way, the, the, the earth closes. Imagine if that happened. Imagine I was up here and I was telling, telling you to sin against God, and all of a sudden the stage just boop, and I fall down. Boop. <laughs> Chances are you'd sit there thinking, wow, God is powerful. God has, God meant to judge that guy. Whoa. So God issues swift judgment on Korah and his rebels, opening the earth, swallows them. What do you think the people did in response to that? Do you think they marveled at God? Number 1641, but on the next day, all the congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and against Aaron, saying, you have killed the people of the Lord. No. <laughs> not only did we not, God did, but these people were not people of the Lord. So these people were supposedly part of God's people. They were Levitical priests. But they hated God. How is that? How? How? How did, how did these priests miss it? How did the Pharisees miss it? They're supposed to be experts in God's law and his, his prophets. And, and it's, it's good news, honestly, that God keeps his people pure. He purges those who are not of his fold. And I don't know if you're following this whole situation with Robbie Zacharias, but God shows when, when people are not faithful. 
And unfortunately, that Ravi Zacharias is a really public one. It's really unfortunate, because I really liked his illustrations. But the same thing happens when, when a false preacher who's a small town preacher dies. All of a sudden, the Lord starts revealing that these stories that have been told about him for a while, they're, they're actually true. God purges those who are not his people from among his people. And that's what he's doing here with the Pharisees. When they're blaspheming against Jesus himself, God incarnate, because the more time the Pharisees spend with him, the more they can't doubt his actions. They can't doubt who he is. They, well, they can doubt, but, but they really can't discredit him in that regard, right? So what do they do? He's doing this by the power of demons. And that's the power of the gospel, friends. The truth of Jesus' coming, his actions, his personhood, that real believers marvel at him. They persevere. But those who are not God's people result in hating him and his people. Even if they're the very ones that should really know better. Better a devil, better a mute devil than a blaspheming devil. Better somebody who stays silent in the midst of, of incredible suffering than one who curses God. But remember, the Pharisees are doing this out of jealousy. They're not suffering. They're, they're looking at Jesus and saying, hey, hey, no-name carpenter dude, you, you don't know what you're talking about. We know what we're talking about. You must be doing this through some devilish power. Listen, God does not only call us to outward righteousness for living, living perfectly. He actually calls us to inward transformation that leads to outward righteousness. The Pharisees missed that. They thought that outward righteousness was going to somehow transform the inside. But as you know, outside pressure may crush you, but it doesn't, it doesn't really change much inside other, other than make you wish that you weren't being crushed. Spending time with Christ will either cause you to marvel at Jesus or to hate him and blaspheme against him. That's the real drama of this text. Not the, not the demon-oppressed or demon-possessed or demonized mute man, but the fact that the Pharisees, the Pharisees hated Jesus. And this isn't the first time they say, well, this is the first time that it's recorded that they say this, but coming up in just a couple chapters, Matthew chapter 12, Jesus calls them out and actually says, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. That's not true. He doesn't actually say that. But he essentially says that. He essentially says, that is stupid. A house divided cannot stand. So why would, why would Satan cast out Satan? That's silly. Don't you want to bind the strong man instead of the in, and before you rob the house? But that's later. In this one, 
I just want us to recognize that it's the Pharisees, the experts in the Bible, who missed the grace and kindness and mercy of God. And instead, the grace, kindness, and mercy of God caused them to hate God. Have there been times where you've looked at God's goodness and said, mm, can't be God? Are there times that you need to repent of where you've despised God because he did something that you were jealous of and you thought maybe you deserved it? I know I have. I know I need to repent. And when you spend time with Jesus, you'll either marvel at the grace that he showed or that, that, that jealousy will begin to burn inside to the point where you blaspheme the same Lord you say you worship. You'll either believe Jesus or hate him. There's no in-between. The Pharisees proved to hate Christ, and so will anyone who spends any time at length with him. That's why the best way to determine if somebody's really a Christian is to see how, 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 much, or how, 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 much they spend, how much time they spend in the Bible and what they think of it. And it's sad sometimes when they run away from him, even when they stay in the word. So let's pray. God, I thank you that you had Matthew record this situation where we hear of these people who really should have acknowledged you instead of, instead of blaspheming you in such a, such a ridiculous manner. Lord, I thank you that you proved your ministry by your own power, not by any other power, but by your own power. I thank you that you treated everyone that came to you with compassion and that you have never changed in that regard, that we can come to you now and know that you're compassionate even if you don't take away our malady. I thank you that there's these examples for us to look at to remember who you were on earth and who you will be when everything is brought right. That it won't have to be individual healings that we go through, but instead everything will be renewed. Open our eyes to that, Lord, and please save us so that we don't doubt your goodness, but instead recognize who you are through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. The benefactors of salvation, those who receive salvation, receive it through Christ and not the law. What wonderful grace that is that causes us to love him more and more every day. Go in peace, saints.